In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. This thing on? Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Welcome to the Garlic Marketing Show. Ian Garlic here. And today's guest, we are going to geek out on a lot of topics. I feel in this interview is going to get super nerdy. So you be ready for it. But before we get started, I introduce my awesome guest, Charlie. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Story Cruise. If you are looking to become an authority and a leader, video is the way to do it. And the best way to do it is hire people trained on storytelling and marketing. Go to storycruise.com to find videographers trained in storytelling in your area. All right. Charlie Gilkey, friend, author, Eagle Scout, former cheerleader, philosopher, military veteran, um, old soul. What else? You've got, you've done it all. And we're going to talk about your book, Start Finishing Today, because I think it's one of the most important things. We're going to get in some detail about how to finish projects, which is I think most of the people listening is their biggest problem. But Charlie, let's do an interesting bio that you haven't done before. Tell me some, I mean, you've got a lot of stuff on here, but how did you get to this point where, you know, we just talked about inflection points, but real quick, how did you get to the point of being a writer and a coach and entrepreneur? Um, so real quick, first, first, th- <laughs> first, thanks for having me. Um, I really appreciate that, Ian. So here, here's, I guess there's sort of two things to look at here. One is growing up where I grew up in the South, being multiracial black, like there was a lot of just having to figure stuff out because no one was giving me anything, right? And so it was like, you don't know how to do X. No one around you knows how to do it. And so you get in there and you figure it out and you're like, oh, that's how you do it. So I learned very quickly that for most things I wanted to learn to do, someone had written a book on it. And so and I learned this as a child. So eight, nine years old, I'm like, I want to do X. I'm like, so what are the books that, because people write, they write books about things they do. And so I started that pathway, but um, a really important inflection point for me was um, I started teaching at a Boy Scout camp when I was, I think, 13. Um, and so I started out being an aquatics instructor for two years and then I became a trail guide. Then I became sort of program directors. And so I'm doing this when I'm 13, 14, 15, 16, right? And just going in there and being in this group of um, kids from all sorts of different backgrounds, doing stuff, figuring it out, teaching, writing about it, teaching about it, it just really became that DNA. And in part of that experience, I had some friends and we were like, I'm looking back and I was like, I was reading that way too early. So I remember reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when I was 14. Me too. Right. (laughs) No one, like I had never taken philosophy. I had no idea really what was going on, but I was like, I love this. And so then I sort of branched off into other sorts of philosophy. And so I, I came home. I was at the laundromat one time and my mom was sitting there and she looked over and it was, I was reading the, the Republic by Plato. Mm. Right. Um, and I was 14 or 15. And, and so she was originally like, you know, like most kids are pissed about having to go to the laundromat, but like, you're fine with it. Cause like you put clothes in there, you go back and you read a few. And she's like, but what's, what's the Republic about? She had never read it. Right. And never heard of it. And so I'm trying to explain, like I'm 15, not really trained, trying to explain this to my mom. Anyways, so these forces <laughs> kind of came together and, and created this amalgam. And so I've just been this way. Like, one, um, I, I love Marie Forleo's title of her new book, like, Everything is Figure Outable, right? <laughs> and so, like, when you sort of learn that everything is figure outable, and you, two, you learn that a good way of figuring things out is to read books to shorthand the experience that you then need to go out into the world and actually get. <laughs> Um, and then three, like, there's just a power in lighting the path for other people, um, and being there. And so that's still what I do. I've been doing this in some version of this since I was 12 or 13. And so I'm now, you know, I just turned 40. So yeah, this just feels a different, a different way of doing the same thing I've always been doing. And, you know, your, your website and, and, and 
blog, this productive flourishing, because I think that, you know, you talk about reading and learning stuff. Um, I think a lot of us read and learn it, but executing it is the next level of it to really bring it in. Um, so, and I feel like productive flourishing is around that, but explain that to people. What does productive flourishing mean? All right. So it's really important that productive modifies flourishing. Okay. Because so especially in sort of the productivity and get her done literature, it's all about doing, doing, doing right. Mm-hmm. And there's very little like conversation about to what end are you better off from all the doing. And so productive flourishing is really about how to thrive through action, right? How do you become this best version of yourself? Um, and you can't just do it in your head. Um, and so that you got to do it in the world. And what I've learned um, for the longest time, and I'm just super anchored on is that you've got to do it with people, you've got to do it with the right people. So if you want to thrive, you're right, I'm, I'm neo Aristotelian in the sense that I think we become by doing. Um, so people are like, you know, I'm not a very courageous person. And I'm like, well, do the things that exhibit courage and you'll become courageous. Like, I don't know that anyone just sits there and like, I'm just that person that's courageous. So we always become by doing. So productive flourishing is a, um, you know, I guess a super nerdy way of saying we become by doing and the point of doing is to um, thrive. Yes. And, and that is a, a very valid point because a lot of people are just like, boom, boom, boom. And then, oh, I got to do this. Oh, so-and-so is doing this. I see this all the time. Like, oh, I saw so-and-so doing this. So I've got to do this. And I saw so-and-so doing this. So I've got to do this. And people think that, you know, and they connect that doing with success, but you're talking about having intention on it. And so what ways do you make sure that you have that intention? Um, so first, I'm glad you mentioned success because, um, success is not the rock bottom thing we're after. Success gets us something else. Mm-hmm. Right. And so one thing that I do is help people think about what that something else is in their life that they're really going after. And sometimes these are root sort of things we don't need to explain anymore, like happiness, like, you know, strong relationships with people we love, fun, play, freedom, like those types of things are the root things that we actually care about. And if quote unquote success is pushing you further away from those things, guess what? You're not succeeding, right? Um, You're playing the game that you're seeing on Instagram, that you're seeing on TV. You're sort of trapped into this prison that you create it for yourself and that people inside that prison are not happy. They're not in great relationships. They may not be. Right. And so that's, that's where I want to keep people anchored on. And whether we're talking about our work or whether we're like economic work to be clear, or whether we're talking about our life, I'm always going to be like, okay, how is that getting you closer to that thing? And so, you know, there are so many people, for instance, that focus on financial freedom and that's a great goal, except for they get there and they don't know what to do right? They've been spending their last few decades trying to get out of debt, trying to get to a minimal lifestyle. Maybe they're, they're a mustachian and then they get there and they're like, but like, what for? Like, I don't know what to do with myself. Who am I? I don't have to work now, but who am I going to be? Mm. And that's what we're trying to um, avoid is getting to that point in our life where we've stacked all the bricks We've done all the projects. We've been on the ladder of success and we get there and we say, but you know what? It's not it. It's not. What have I been working for these last decades? And when you say it's not it, do you mean it's not the right ladder or they got to the, on the right ladder, but didn't want to be at the top of it? It can mean multiple things. Um, and so um, again, I'm not going to be super normative here and say like, here's how you should live your life or yeah. anything like that. But you see like people climbing the ladder, like the wrong ladder on the wrong wall. Um, and they're getting higher up and people like that they're climbing, but at the final point, they look down and like, shit, I'm on the wrong ladder and on the wrong wall. I get, I've been doing a lot of climbing <laughs> for nothing. And sometimes um, it's because we think there are things that will make us happy and they end up not. And so if you read, um, oh, it's stumbling on happiness. It'll come back to me. Marty Seligman, Marty Seligman's book, stumbling on happiness. One of the theses from that book is that we're terrible about predicting what's going to make us happy. We're super terrible at it. Um, he gives some strategies for how to do that, but part of it is we're terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy. The second is we unfortunately live our life um, by shooting on ourselves. 
meaning we, we see someone else's values, we see something else that someone else cares about, and we say, oh, we should want that, or that's what we should do. And we end up in some life version of the fire Festival. <laughs> right to where we're caught up and if you're not familiar with the fire festival it's basically a bunch of smoke and mirrors and people over promising a certain lifestyle but when they got there it was a complete crap show right and so, i love that movie <laughs> right and so um you know we sort of live in that in that world and it's too easy because i think um you know i'm of i'm a little bit i'm a i'm like an early millennial right or late millennial depending upon where you draw that line um, but I look at people that are a little bit younger than me that have grown up on really digital social validation as a metric for what happiness is. Yeah. Um, and so they see people that they're doing all the things on Instagram and they get the thousands of likes and things like that. And they're like, oh, that's what happiness or that's what success or that's what I want. But ultimately, a lot of times it's not. It's true. It is true because it, and it's easy to default to like, oh, that's what happiness is. That's what success is. Because it's, it's scary to define it yourself. Um, and, you know, so once you decide, you know, I want to talk about finishing. Because I feel like this also, you know, obviously your book here, Start Finishing, awesome stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's important. Because I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this, they're good at getting stuff started, especially when they see it. They're like, oh, let me get this course. Let me get started because I want 80,000 Instagram followers or I want, I need 500 likes per post. Um, you know, I want to be a YouTube influencer. And like you said, to what end? And I want to talk about, you know, deciding that in a second. But I, I want to go a little geeky on the philosophy since you're a philosopher and, we're, and I noticed you were talking about uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and you have some Taoism in there. But so how does this line up with the whole Taoist idea of non-action, of moving without action? Yeah, I think way, 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 which is what you're talking about, is yep. often misunderstood, right? Um, I, I think a better way of understanding that for Americans is acting without striving, right? And so it's not about non-action. It's about that striving, that push, that that that. Um, too tight hands on the wheel, right? Sort of, I got to drive everything that focuses your attention just on that train, as opposed to finding those ways in your life where there's this natural flow between your principles, your priorities, and the way that you're spending your days. And so when you get into true non-action or way, 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 it's actually, you're getting a lot done. It just doesn't feel like that push, that drive that, you know, you don't need 18 cups of coffee a day for that drive to work. And so I think that's where, again, when we think of non-action, I think that often is misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's actually way, way, way means doing, not doing, which is doesn't translate very well to the United States but I, I, or to Americans. But I think that's what that is more of what's implied or like when you look at the totality of the data Ching, that's really what's being said. And, that's amazing because that's i mean then we're talking about a flow state in your work um and getting into that flow state so what do you i mean you're coaching people you're obviously thinking a lot about this what are the keys then to finding that right ladder finding that way and making sure you're doing you know when you set out to make that plan that it, it's the plan that will most likely get you into that flow state yeah, so I think one of the things to think about is planning. People think planning is a cerebral exercise, and it's partially a cerebral exercise, but it's also a really emotional exercise. If you don't create a plan that is compelling and drives you to do it and makes you super clear and regretful about the things you're not going to be able to do because you're doing that, you haven't really dove in deep enough. You haven't really gone deep enough yet, right? You're still in that place of all things are possible, and, um, you know, as much as an abundant thinker as I am, the, the fundamental frustration that we have is that as humans, we are unlimited sentience in a limited body, right? We can dream up all the different things that we might do, and we can see how that could happen. Unfortunately, there's only so much time and energy in a day, right? And so that would be the first thing is, again, if you're making a plan and you don't feel two things like that positive tug that, I got, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome, you know, some version of whatever that feels like for you. And two is like damn it, but I can't do these other things, probably not digging deep enough. 
Two nice. would be, um, it's really about the people that you wrap around yourself and you put into it. So I call it your success pack, which has four different ty- types of people, guides, peers, supporters, and um, beneficiaries. And we can go through those if you want to, Ian. Definitely but, would love to. But importantly, too many marketers, and I'm going to sp- focus on marketers, um, forget about the people, right? We get into the numbers and we get into the likes and we get into the proxy side of that. Numbers as a proxy, but beneficiaries are those people who benefit from the completion of your project, right? Both process and the completion of your project. And they benefit one of two ways because you got to remember no matter what we create, we're doing one of two things we are solving a problem or we are delivering a delight. Sometimes we do both, right? And so, not really being connected to the people whose problems you're solving or whose delights you're delivering to, or who you're, who you're delivering delights to can create the scenario to where all things are possible. You do something. And this is, I guess, I'm, and I don't want to be overproducting here, but at a certain point in the early stage of starting, say your content marketing or social media marketing, things are fun. You're getting all the likes, you're getting all the things. It's a new thing. Like people like you, they really like you, that sort of thing. But at a certain point it becomes work, right? And you just got to get in and you put the work in and so on and so forth. And when you think of the hedonic treadmill, or the hedonic adaptation, which means that you get used to a new level of success and happiness, and that becomes normal. Um, so you don't feel it as much. It's easy to get emotionally distanced from the people you're speaking with and talking to and trying to persuade. And so I'm I'm going to the root sort of you know Seth Godin is <laughs> Seth Godin from this is marketing. Like marketing is just about persuading people to act, mm-hmm. right? That's really what it is. And so you forget that. And that's one of the things that that's, I think, where we get stale marketing that doesn't work, right? It's formulaic. We found out the, the, the headline hacks that work. We find out the templates at work and it's just a content meal that's not connecting, right? Yep. Um, the third thing that I would say is understanding that um, the more something matters to you, the more you're going to thrash with it. And thrashing is the term I have for that meta work, that flailing, that quote unquote research that's around the work, but doesn't actually push the work forward. Right. And think about it. Like no one really thrashes about doing the dishes or taking out the laundry or doing air. We might not want to do it, but it doesn't evoke an existential crisis. Like, of, am I the right person? Is this right? But somebody else is doing this. Is this the right? Time? Like, what if I get it wrong? But when we really do things, and this is important for marketers because sometimes you know, I just mentioned not caring in a way about the beneficiaries, but sometimes you care so much that it gets in your own damn way. Because what if you do the thing and it fails? What if you put your heart and soul into this asset and it's crickets, right? What if, and so that's a top line story that we tell ourselves. The more deep one, which is what we often don't talk about is what if it succeeds, like we have so many no-win scenarios we tell ourselves about success that it's like, if I do this thing and it goes viral, which is always, a, whew, I, don't get me talking about people wanting things to go viral. But anyway, if it goes viral, then what if it changes my business? What if I become known for that? What if I ruffle some feather? What if that's when all the trolls that have just been waiting on that perfect moment to pounce on me? that's when they're going to get me, right? We have all sorts of stories around that. So we're scared to fail and we're scared to succeed at the same time. So what do we do? We jump on Facebook and click somebody else's link, right? We, you know, do something that's safe and predictable and likely to get the results and follows the templates and the best practices. And we end up either not being seen or looking exactly like somebody else. Yep. And that's it. What you're saying that I think people need to stop and listen to it and listen to it again, because it's really what's preventing a lot of people from doing the right things. It really is. And I, you know, I, I see it all the time, you know, in our clients and people I consult with, I'm like, here's what you need to do. And they, they're like, I know I need to do that. Oh, but I, and then they come up with some, you know, I'm too busy. It's always the one I don't have enough time. I'll get to that. Oh, that, you know, what are they going to say about that? And, and getting it inside your own head is super important. So how do you overcome that? And I'm assuming that that's all part of the finishing. Cause I also want to get back into that success pack, but how do you overcome that? The thrashing piece, the thrashing piece. One is to understand that thrashing is not a sign that something's wrong. 
right? A lot of times you get that discomfort and it's like, oh, something must be wrong because unfortunately we've grown up and through cultural osmosis, we've picked up on the the really terrible talent myth. And the talent myth states that there are those people who are really good at things from an early age that they just do it and it's effortless and they should do those things. And if you are doing something and it's hard, you don't have a talent in that. So maybe you should go find your talent or maybe you're talentless, right? And so what happens is when we start struggling, there's a piece of you that's like, well, maybe like, you're just not good at this. Maybe this is not the thing you should be doing. <laughs> like maybe you should go hire, you know, Ian, cause he knows what he's doing. You don't. Right. And so yeah. that's the first thing we tell ourselves. So it's like, Nope, that's hard. I'm going to go do something that's easier. Um, and that's the problem, right? If you, I, I say, beware the siren call of the easier project, right? Because you're struggling and you're like, Oh, there's this your project and you jump to it. One or two things happens. One, it's a project that's not nearly going to be as impactful. Two, it might be equally impactful, but whatever was challenging you with the first project, guess what? It's going to come over with that second project. It's not like you jumping mm-hmm. projects, you know, automatically made you better at managing time. It automatically made you courageous. It automatically changed something. Like whatever you're struggling with here, you're going to struggle with there. Um, so the question a lot of times it comes, is this the time that you say, you know what? Enough. I'm, I'm going through, I'm running towards the dragon. I'm running towards this uncomfort or this discomfort versus running away from it. And really what's, what's running away from it gotten you, right? Yep. Um, so run towards the creative fire, run towards the creative dragon. That's, that's the other thing too. Um, be open to talk to people, right? And just like, under, once you understand that everybody thrashes about things that matters to them, you don't have to feel so damn defective when you're struggling, right? Um, every writers know what every writer knows what writer's block is. And so when writers get together, you're like, you're blocked. And it's not like this big principle of shame. It's not like, Oh God, what's wrong with you? I like, you've written five books. Like you should know better. It's like, no, that crap happens, man. Like this morning as an example, dude, I've written so many words. It's crazy. But this morning I was like, man, I'm having to like fight my internal editor so hard. Because my drafter was like in his happy place. He was just like cranking a bunch of words. I was writing an email sequence, right? And I was just in the flow writing. And then I looked up and I had written something like 1,200 words. I was like, dude, this is an email. That's what my editor said. Like, dude, stop writing, right? You got to go back and simplify this. And I was like, actually, no, I don't. I can finish this draft. I can get it out and then evaluate and say, you know what? It's just going to be a long email because it's serving my customers. Or am I going to do something different with it? But to stop and end up with nothing, like, no, thank you, editor, right? That's not what I came down here to do. So again, just knowing that it's a part of the process and being able to say, man, I'm stuck, I'm thrashing. And what can be super powerful here is with your success pack. And again, we might come back to that. Yeah, I want to talk about that, yeah. If you let them know what thrashing looks like for you, they can call you on your stuff, right? They can just be like, nope, right? You're thrashing, right? That's really what's going on. So like, I have a friend, brilliant guy. And I've worked with him, you know, for a decade or so now. And I know when he's thrashing because he'll line up a bunch of interviews with a bunch of people around his projects and just talk a whole bunch. And six months later, end up in the same space that he started with because he already knew what he wanted to do. And he was all along those conversations. He was the smartest guy in every one of those conversations. And so he just spent six months confirming that his idea was right. When I was like, how about we just take action on the idea now? and avoid the six month things. Um, but it's a work in progress, right? Um, I, I'm going to throw in a quick ADHD aside here. Cause you mentioned your clients say that, you know, something else came up like with yeah. my clients after about the third meeting, um, I didn't have time. It's not something that we can say anymore. It's I, I prioritize differently. Yep. Right. Okay. Now we're having a different conversation. Would you want to prioritize looking back now, would you prioritize the same way or was there something else going on? Right. And so again, taking that choice back, because if you let it, you'll never have time. Right. So just, just inside, but understanding that we are understand that we are making these choices and we can choose differently and then we'll have different outcomes. But if you're under the tyranny of the urgent now, and you don't do something to prioritize differently two weeks from now, you're still going to be under the tyranny of the urgent two months, two years. It won't, it will not change until you change it. Uh, it's very true. Very, very, very true. And, and it is prioritization. 
with the exception of if you're an emergency room doctor, most of us, you know, they say we don't have enough time. I'm like, it, it is prioritization. As yeah. it, it, it's, it, there's nothing, very few things actually have to get done, have to get done right now. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. And yeah. even if it's like I had to do it or I'd lose my job. Okay. Well, your job is a priority. Now we know that going forward for everything else that you say. And so I'm going to be asking, how does the work from your job impact what we're talking about here? Because if it turns out that if you don't do it and you're going to lose your job is always going to be the operative principle, then we can't assume that there's no point in which you have this free space that, that you pretended that you had two weeks ago. Mm. Very good. So let's success pack. Let's okay. talk about who those, the, those people are and how do you develop those people? Cause I, I think this is critical what you're talking about here. Great. Um, and thanks for that. I'm going to start with the four kinds in a second, but I want to start with who is not on your team because this is super important and we, we do this wrong. So naysayers and derailers are not on your team. And that seems obvious. Like, though, Charlie, who would put a naysayer on their, on their project team? We do it all the time, right? It's like that one person out there that we're trying to make happy, right? Um, they're like, if we make them happy, then the project's golden. Not, right? So here's the thing. Uh, the poet, musician, and, and philosopher Taylor Swift said it correctly. When haters going to hate. It's actually Cat Williams, but we'll not go into who said what. Right? <laughs> naysayers and naysayers are going to do what they do, right? Mm -hmm. And the very worst thing, and this is what people don't understand, the very worst thing that you can do is win over a naysayer because then you're sort of beholden to their standards. And at some point, they're going to revert back to the normal selves. Like, so... Don't put them on your success pack. Don't put anyone on your success pack where you feel that pit in your stomach about how they're going to punch you or beat you up or, you know, kneecap you when you talk to them. Um, and that includes derailers. And the difference between naysayers and derailers is naysayers, they have a principle. They're either out to get you. They don't like what you're doing or they have appointed themselves the arbiter of good standards. Um, and so they're out just to tell people what's right and what's wrong and, and what should be done, so on and so forth. Derailers are often people you love that can be friends who really do mean the best for you. But every time you talk to them, it just rubs you the wrong way. Right. It just you tell them about your project and they're like, well, that doesn't seem very important. You're like, well, shit, you know, there went two weeks of motivation I built up or, you know, they're you know, they tell you, you know, that whole it won't work all those types of things, or it's, it's those people. And I don't know why, you know, I'm originally from the South. I said that, but like, I'm going to say it in this way, the devil's advocate guy. Right. And there's always a guy actually, or usually a guy that's like, well, you say something. I was like, well, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. And it's like, devil don't need no advocate. He's doing pretty good on his own. Right. <laughs> you don't need that. Right. At this point, yeah. if someone asks you to be the devil's advocate, then be the devil's advocate, but don't volunteer. <laughs> Right. Because that's really just a way of you cloaking to be able to like ask questions in a way that shields you from the impact of those questions. Because otherwise you wouldn't say I'm going to play the devil's advocate. You just ask a heartfelt but constructive question. <laughs> Anyways, so derailers, they also don't go on your project. And that might mean your brother, your mom, your, your life partner may not need to be on that project. Um, and that can be super hard because we want those folks sometimes we want to be able to you know go to the library or coffee shop and get some great work done and come home and share it with the people and unfortunately those people may not be the people that support that that are you know on your on your success pack um and so um there are different strategies for different strategies and tactics for how to deal with them but the fundamental thing is is that like if you're always having to fight with the people that you want to talk about your project with and celebrate with, it's a losing battle every time. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose it over time. Um, so what we want to do is stack the deck with yaysayers. And yaysayers are the opposite of those people. These are the people who already believe in you. These are the people who, like, whenever you say you're going to do something, they've been like, of course you're going to do that. That's who you are, <laughs> right? Or you're like, you know, when you say something and you get worried about failure, and you're like... Look at all the other things that you've done. You can do this too. Like they are those types of cheerleaders and people in on your side that positively fuel your project. Okay. So don't worry about all this energy that we can sometimes have about proving your naysayers wrong. Like I'm going to show them I can do this. <laughs> How about you prove your naysayers right? Right. And say, you saw that I went and did it. You were right. Thank you. 
right? That's great. It's a completely different energy. Yeah. Four kinds of people, uh, four kinds of naysayers. And before I set this up, you want three to five of each of the kind that I'm talking about per significant project. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. He's like, oh, wow, this just got real. <laughs> guides. Guides are your Gandalfs, your Yodas, your Morpheuses, your sort of wise sage on the road that you pull onto the project um, because you're pulling your guides on, not for their hands. We'll talk about that in a minute. Really for their eyes. They see the world in a way that you don't, and they see possibilities that you can't see. And sometimes they'll see the things that you're doing that keep you from doing it. So you're pulling them on for the vision. So your guides, they're not going to people who open doors for you, right? They're not going to people that like give you that secret key to success that once you have that thing, all the world would be better. They're probably going to remind you that you already have something that you need and that you just got to use it or that you got to get out of your own damn way, right? So those are guides. You pull them on for your vision. Second group are your peers. These are your phone or friends. These are the people that are sort of side by side with you. Um, you're pulling them on the team for their brains. You're soundboarding, you're picking them up. Like they can supply some of that. They can do a little bit of work, like more work than your guides. But again, you're not getting them because they're going to do work that pushes the project forward besides advising you, um, being good, good strategic partners and soundboarders. Three are your supporters. And these are the people who supply hands for the projects. They do one of two things. Um, they either do some work as part of the project or they do work that lets you do the work. So, and this is what I want to really stress to folks is so often we just think of team as our work team, but it can be that neighbor kid who watch, who um, watches your pets or kids or elders while you go to the coffee shop and get some, some useful work done. Right. It could be the barista. Like I considered the barista. In fact, I was there this morning. I know all their names. They know what I do. They're actual people. Right. Yeah. Um, we have conversations and they know what I'm going to order. So when I walk in, I don't have to say what I'm going to order, which is really important when you're a writer and you got sort of writer's dumbly brain first thing in the morning. <laughs> ordering cappuccino can be the hardest thing in the world. Right. Um, and I don't have to do that. So they're part of my, my, my support, uh, my success pack as well. So recruit people in. And so this is, one of those sidebar things, but an important things, I want us to shift the conversation from like individual slash personal productivity to collective productivity. How do we get important things done in groups and how do we create those groups around ourselves? Um, fourth group, and I mentioned this earlier, are your beneficiaries. These are the people who benefit from both the process and the outcome of your finished project. Um, you're pulling them on because they are the heart of your project, right? They help you in two different ways. One is when you're mentally stuck and you don't know what to do, rather than spend six, nine months Googling and random wandering and sketching out 18 different variations of the thing, you can, you know, send an email or text or phone call to someone you're actually making the thing for and say, hey, I'm trying to do this. How does this land for you? And shut up and listen and hear what they have to say, right? You can shortcut that six to nine months to like two days, right? So that's one thing. The second thing that they could do is when you're feeling emotionally stuck and you're ready to phone it in, you're ready to just give up. You remember that like, if you don't complete the thing that you're doing, that person is worse off or they at least the same as you found them. Right. Um, that delight that you were trying to deliver is not delivered. That problem you're trying to solve is not solved. Right. And so we try, when I, when I talk about this, people, the first thing is like, Oh, I got to go get more guides. I need the guides. No. You need closer and tighter relationships with your beneficiaries. That's the secret sauce, right? Because um, your guides are just going to tell you, like, they're all, it's always going to sound like a fortune cookie after the fact, right? You won't get it, and they'll tell you you've already got what you need. And you're like, that's not helpful because I don't feel like I have what I need. Later on, you'll realize they were right, but you couldn't see it at the time. But your beneficiaries are actually the people that are going to get you through this project. Yes. Oh, quick note on here. I said three to five per that means you end up with 12 to 20 people around this project. One, there are several reasons for this. One is it's really hard to hide from 12 to 20 people. Like if you just got one person on the project, you can play all sorts of shadow games with that person and convince them of why, like what you're doing, whatever labyrinth of a story you're telling them is completely reasonable, right? You can't do that with 12 to 20 people. Mm. Two, these are the people, I, I like to sometimes call them like your reality distortion field. 
but people read that the wrong way. They think like they are altering the reality, but no, they're actually reminding you of the reality of what you can do and what's possible. Right. And they provide just enough buffer against the rest of society telling you, you can't do it. Why you one out of 10 business or, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail in the first year, right? That's super hard when you're starting a business to hear, right? So they are the people that distort that reality. Um, And these are the people that will remind you when you're done. And so here's what I'll say this. We think about projects and we forget about what happens after we complete a project. And that's actually one of the most important things. One of the really powerful things about your success pack is that they will remind you to celebrate, to amplify, to publicize, and to integrate the success that you've done. Otherwise, you'll sort of slide into home and start, you know, getting ready to swing the next one. And they're like, no, 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 wait a second. Like, this is significant. You've been doing this for two years. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's such a great mind shift the mindset shift that you're talking about here, because, you know, when I think of, you know, people that you talk to and you, and you get people that are super positive and it's easy to listen to, like, it's easy to go brush off someone that's super positive about you and you go, Oh, they're just being positive. Uh, but when you surround yourself with the right people, the, there you go. And also ignoring the naysayers um, and identifying them. I think that's a crucial thing that we really haven't done is being able to identify those people and go, this is where this person fits and this is their role for me. Uh, And on a side note, beneficiaries, uh, you know, I talk about all the time with my clients, get to know your, the people you work with as much as possible because it's, it's going to make you feel better about yourself, but you're going to become a a thousand times better marketer. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to say it this way, like, and I'm going I'm to I'm call out the guys on this one, right? Because I, I know sometimes how we work. In a non-creepy way, ask people about their families, right? Yeah. Just on meetings, when you're talking about marketing or something, like, how are the kids going? How's your wife? You know, um, get involved. And the reason I say that is because that's where we start to see the totality of, a, of people as humans. And it's not just transactional, like, we're going to meeting and we're going to do this 32-minute meeting format that I've set up that increases efficiency, so on and so forth. And like, whenever efficiency tramples over empathy, you've lost, right? I love that. Um, and so just simple enough, hey, how are the kids? Like, I know last time we talked, you know, one of your kids came home from school, like learn their names. Um, so this is the thing, what I did when I, um, when I deployed overseas is I was a follow-on lieutenant, meaning my, my, my unit had left before I did. And so I was meeting them in theater. And so super hard to do as a, as a second lieutenant. But I was like, okay, um, I don't know these people. They don't know me. We're going to be doing tactical combat convoys, or we're going to be doing tactical convoys at the time that these guys have figured out how to blow us up. This is not a good thing, right? And so it's like, how am I going to do this? So what I did is I went through their personnel records, um, which I had access to. I wrote down their names, where they lived, the name of their spouse, the name of their kids, and how old they were, um, and memorized every one of my 45 troops where they live, not like their addresses, but like, Oh, they live here. They live there really figured out these relationships. And it made a difference when I would talk to them and I, you know, we'd be talking about something and it'd be sort of after you've done most of the business, you just be kind of hanging out and be like, Hey John, how's Amy doing? Like, I know how's she doing with you being deployed right now? Cause I know it's really hard for all of us. I'm just wondering about your family. And he was like, wait a second, how, who, what, like, how do you know this and why, like, and not in a creepy way, but just in a, like, I care enough that you're, you're not just Sergeant Smith to me. Like you're a person, you have a family, you've been pulled out of this. How are things going? It just makes a huge difference. And took me two or three days to do it. Um, paid off the whole time, man. While you're saying that, I'm just imagining if everyone listened to this, picked out 40 of their favorite clients, followers, whatever, and just dug in and really got to know them really, really well and had those conversations, how would their, you know, their business would transform, their marketing would transform, their life would transform. I mean, complete transformation. Yeah. And it's it's a simple thing to do, but man, you know, and I think that's where a lot of people in marketing, entrepreneurship, they talk about scale, 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 scale. And it, it, you, you jump past this. Uh, I've talked to so many people like, well, I want a scalable business. I'm like, well, how many people, have you, uh, you know, how much have you sold? Nothing. How many people have you helped? Nothing. 
like, well, let's help 10 people really, really well before. Yeah. yeah oh. um, if you haven't nailed server, don't worry about scale. Yep. Right. Just, just completely like, cause you haven't served people yet. Once you figured out how to consistently serve people, deliver that delight, solve those problems, then maybe start worrying about how you're going to scale that. But if you can't do it with four people, you can't do it with 40 or 400 or 4,000 or 40,000. Yeah, no, this is great. It's this fantastic stuff. Um, so I, I want to shift a little to a little more tactical. Um, I mean, not that that's not tactical, but it, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, but you have, I, I, if you go to Charlie's website, productiveflourishing.com, and you click on free planners, you're going to be blown away by these tools here. Uh, talk to me about these tools, especially I, I love the idea of the digital momentum planner because nothing, I think nothing in business can overcome momentum and, and keeping it up. It's hard to get, but yeah. once you get it, you can rock. Yeah, I really appreciate you calling this out because it's, I mean, I've created a lot of things, but it's still one of my favorite pages because one, it's free stuff that like we don't ask for your email address to download. You can just get it, right? Um, obviously, there are places you can download, but you don't have to, or you can put that in. But really what those tools do is give people containers for their creativity and energy. Um, and that's where people are either going to love them or hate them. So they're not calendars in the sense of like, no one needs to replicate what Google Calendar has already done. You've got a meeting, you put a meeting in, it does that for you. Right. But what these do is like help you figure out like, okay, I've got these five month sized projects, um, which I might need to talk about the five projects rule here in just a second. I answer. All right. Um, but yeah, so I've got these five month sized projects. How do I break them down into week sized chunks? And on what weeks am I going to put those week sized chunks? And how am I going to put them together so that you don't go from something like, you know, write a white paper that mysteriously hangs out on your, on your project deck for like, <laughs> six months to like outline white paper, which might take you two hours to do, right? Or research, you know, you can break that down into smaller, smaller chunks. And so that's really what it does is it helps you, um, you know, we have a momentum planner for every time perspective. So we've got one for the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual. And the reason we do it that way is because where so many of us creative people really spin ourselves out is when we try to think of like a year sized chunk of time. And then we immediately at the same time, start try to start figuring out what we're going to do tomorrow. But that's <laughs> like thinking about like an ant and the size of the United States at the same time, you just can't mentally do it. Right. And so when you're thinking all of our momentum planners, what they help you do is like, for instance, I'll take the monthly, which a lot of people can get their arms around them. The month is going to, the monthly planner is going to say, okay, what are your five major projects for the quarter? So the time horizon above it. Okay. What are you doing this month? Okay. What are your priorities, your month size priorities for this month? And then, okay, now that you know those two things, where do you schedule those chunks in the weeks? So they're always going to do that for you is help you have that one higher view, the view you're at, and then the one that helps you actually plan. And so it's really helpful for a lot of people. It can be, it's a mind shift though. I will say that, right? Because um, you want to talk about brains going haywire. Like I, and when I see so many people's task lists and action lists, I'll see like three month size projects. And then I'll see like four 15 minute tasks. And then, you know, two or three week size projects all on the same piece of paper. And I look at it and my brain just goes, I can't do it. Right. <laughs> but that's because I can see it and I know the complexities, but like we're doing that to ourselves every day. Yeah. Right? And so one of the, one of the things to think about is like, if you're making your daily plan at most, you want to have some idea of what you're trying to do this week. And then everything else should be like at that daily time horizon. Right. So you're talking 15 minutes. So this is one of those takeaways. When you're looking at the daily slash weekly level, um, break your work down into two slices or two, I'm going to say quantas because I'm a nerd and I can get away with it. Two sort of quantas of time, 15 minute tasks or two hour chunks, two hour blocks. All of your work can probably be fit in those two types of things as far as not, not your meetings and everything like, and here's why I want to want people to do that. People are overwhelmed by email, right? Constant sort of thing. 
what they don't understand is by the time you archive all the easy stuff and delete all the easy stuff, you end up with most of us end up with six to eight emails that take at least 15 minutes on average a piece to do. That's two hours of work. Where does that two hours live on your schedule? So if you start saying like, I'm going to respond to these 10 people today, when I look at my clients list and when I look at people's lists, I'm like, okay, you're responding to 10 people. It needs a legitimate response. It's going to take at least 15 minutes a piece. Where does two and a half hours of email live on your, on today's schedule? And if it doesn't live on today's schedule, guess what? Something is not going to happen. Likely you're not going to finish the work like your, your quadrant two important, but not urgent work because you got to get these emails done or something is going to shift. So it's just super useful to say, you know what? I'm just going to count. I've got these admin tasks. I'm going to assume they're 15 minutes a piece. That's how much you have. Two hour blocks are, I call them focus blocks. These are the amount of time that it takes to really get into, especially a creative project, but all sorts of projects to make some meaningful progress on them, to get into that ramp up time, to get your coffee, to like sort of chew on a little bit and to wrap it, to wrap it up in a way so that when you pick it up next time, you're not trying to figure out what you did last time. Right. That yeah. for most people takes 90 minutes to two hours. I just say two hours. And if you just sort of say like, look, I'm going to go back to writing the white paper. I know because I've done it enough that for most people, that's going to take 10 to 20 focus blocks to do. Right. Um, so I don't need to go like how many hours is it going to be? I mean, we can do that, but I'm, I can look at their schedule and say, okay, over the next month, where do those focus blocks live? Right. Where do those two hour blocks live? And that means if you're getting up this morning, you're like, damn, I got to write this white paper. Well, look at your schedule. Where do you have those focus blocks? And guess what? If you don't have them, the reality is you're going to punt that project and punt it and punt it and get to the end of the week and be in the same spot. And so many people, I think, misdiagnose themselves as either procrastinators or lazy or just can't get rights. When the reality is they just don't have enough focus blocks on their schedule to do the deep work that they need to do. Yep. I love that. You have that focus block planner on there. And I think this is critical and understanding your energy levels too. When you get that, you know, where, where is that? Because if you're going to do something super creative and you know, at two o'clock you're down, don't be scheduling that super creative thing at two o'clock. Yeah. And I go even further than that. There are different ways we can think about time too. For instance, I had a client that was stuck on a novel for like 12 years. It wasn't going wow. anywhere. Right. Um, and so she kept making her novel writing days Friday. And so when I started working with her, I was like, so can we make a shift? Can we move your novel writing day to Monday and move some of the rest of the stack? Um, because what I want is your novel to get your best energy of the week. And that's on Monday. It's not Friday. Friday, you're dead and you want to phone it in. That's why your novel's not going anywhere. And so we switched it. And in a, I think it was six, nine months, she finished the novel. Right. And it's not like we created more time. We just changed the arrangement of time. And the same thing happens to the day. If you know you're done at two, like don't, here's what's super hard. One, don't program some focus blocks or some of that deep work to be after two. But two, this is the hard sort of pro tip here. The hard practice is if your day went, if your morning went sideways and your day went sideways and you see that it's two o'clock, Better to say, you know what? I'm not getting that done today. I'm going to have to reschedule that and figure it out than to beat yourself up and be stuck on a click hole for four hours because <laughs> you're, you can't really do the work, but you can't let yourself get up, right? Yeah. Call it, make better use of your time. Maybe you decide, if you, especially if you work for yourself or you have some autonomy over your schedule, maybe you decide to cut the day two hours short. And tomorrow you come back with more energy, but we've all as creative folks, we've all tried to do that push at the end of the day or in that wrong time. And like we end up in a click hole somewhere or yeah. we struggle and fight. We get like seven words on the page and then we wake up the next morning and realize those seven words were crap and that we shouldn't have done it anyways. Right. We wore ourselves yeah. out, got seven crap words and now we're doubly beating ourselves up. So just don't do that. And again, that second one is the hard one, guys. I get it. And I have to check myself. This is why I have things like cold turkey blocker that go that that shuts me out of social media at four thirty every day, right? Oh wow! Uh, and so because I know that that's the time that my willpower dips, and I also know that that's the time in which if I didn't get something done, that's where my engine is still like do it, do it, do it, and just like I'm going to end up on Facebook, and 
or wherever and it just blocks me out of that so i'm sitting there looking at a screen I'm like okay i'm done i'm, I'm not just going to be looking at the screen it's great stuff um you know we got in so much today charlie thank you so much uh, you know and i definitely want to have you back and and uh you know you're definitely check out productiveflourishing.com uh and the free planners um and obviously this book start finishing and how to go from idea to done it's easy to a lot of us can start ideas it's finishing because that that book 80 percent done is not helping you it's actually pulling on you yeah charlie Charlie. yeah go ahead well i'm gonna jump in real quick just one thing to remember um finished projects are the bridge from your current reality to the reality you want to be in if you don't finish those projects you're going to stay stuck where you are so if you want a better life if you want better work if you want better results you got to finish those projects love it and i was gonna ask you if you have one last tip and that i think that's perfect (laughs) charlie thank you so much for being on the show thanks so much for having me all right and thank you all for listening make sure to check out charlie's book and also check out uh, the productiveflourishing.com, the free planners on there, just skim through it. If you are a tool, like if you like tools like me, like that, you're going to love it. Uh, thank you all for listening and taking Charlie and I on your journey. This is Ian Garlic and the Garlic Marketing Show. Video. You know it will make you an authority. You know it will get you more leads, better leads that close faster and spend more with you. And video stories will help you be remembered and connect with those perfect clients. The problem is, where do you start? Storycruise.com is the place to go. It's like a film crew with an S. What's your strategy? Do you do it yourself? Do you hire a videographer, an agency? Do you need an editor? How do you know if they really know your business and how to make videos for business that work? The answer to all of this and more can be found at storycruise.com. It is the place to find the latest video marketing strategies, the best gear for your business, as well as videographers, editors, and agencies near you that are trained in video storytelling for business. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get special insider info for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show, including special access to several of my courses, including my case story course. Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get a whole bunch of special offers just for listeners of the Garlic Marketing Show. Whether you're looking for a videographer or to do it yourself, Go to storycruise.com slash garlic to get started today. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook. 